Bible class, and we also welcome our KFUO listening audience to Bible class this morning. We are back on track here at St. Paul's. Our sermon series is over, so we're going to be considering the lessons for next Sunday, the 14th Sunday after Pentecost. And so we'll be covering those lessons this morning. The first lesson is Ezekiel 33, 7 to 9, our Old Testament lesson. Ezekiel is a fascinating book. Ezekiel, when he saw the visions that he saw, they, he was in Babylon. He was not in Jerusalem or Judea. He was in Babylon. He was one of the exiles that was carried off into Babylon. And it is from Babylon that he gives the word of the Lord. If you read the first part of Ezekiel, it's the vision of the wheels. Remember the wheels? But it's also his calling into what he's supposed to do. And his calling is to be a watchman. Now, the watchman is charged with helping the people stay on track with their faith in the Lord. He is their helper. And Ezekiel 33 says publicly to the people what Ezekiel heard as his call in Ezekiel chapter 3. So let's look at these verses. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So as a watchman, he is supposed to warn people when they get tangled up in their wickedness so that they will repent and turn to the Lord for forgiveness. But the Lord is saying, if you know they're tangled up in this wickedness and you don't warn them, their blood's on you. Blood's on you. Now, this has application for today. It was not just the prophet in uh, that day. You're looking at the watchman. 
over you. Okay? Over you. You're looking at the watchman. Um, this was for the prophet, but this is basically the role that a pastor has today. That when we see someone in our parish that's flirting with sin or falling away from the Lord, we warn them. We warn them. And the people that assist us in that ministry, because of the size of this congregation, are the Board of Elders. So, uh, if I see someone missing at church, I will call them and say, we're missing you. You need to come and hear the word and receive the sacraments. And what most people don't realize is, I go through the membership roster name by name, once every month or two, and those that I'm not seeing, I assign those names to the Board of Elders to call them and encourage them to come back to church. Come back to church. Now, if someone's caught in some sin, then the pastors take care of that. But when it comes to encouraging people not to stray from church attendance, both pastors and elders do that. When an elder calls, it's a friendly reminder. By the time I call, it's like the police showing up at your house. Okay, the senior pastor's on the phone and he wants you, okay? But that's kind of the, the thing we're talking about here with the prophet Ezekiel and being a watchman. And that's part of the calling of the pastor, is to be a watchman for the people. And it's not done because we don't like you and we want to pick on you, just the opposite, as we will talk about in the gospel lesson. It's because God wants us to show that kindness to each other so that when someone is falling into sin or straying from God's promises, we all are concerned and we all watch out for each other. Not as superiors, but as fellow Christians, that this is our task for each other. So the watchman, the pastor, that is our responsibility, but that does not release you from the responsibility as a fellow Christian to speak to one another. And sometimes that's more effective than me doing is that your friend 
in the congregation is the one that comes to you and says, where have you been? We missed you. So it is a church community body of Christ thing, not just the pastor. Like, it's not just the pastor's responsibility to try to win souls for Christ. That's all of ours through the witness of the gospel. So we can't become so focused, we narrow it down so that you don't have to do anything. The pastor's supposed to do that. We pay him to do that. That's not the way the body of Christ is supposed to work according to the scriptures. We work together to watch out and care for one another. So this is the call of Ezekiel, uh, the responsibility of Ezekiel, and we will see how that ties in to the gospel lesson a little later. Our epistle lesson, Romans 13, 1 to 10. We are in the middle of reading through the book of Romans. And so this particular chapter uh, is, is uh, well known. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We've heard that passage before. And unfortunately, the first thing people do when they read that passage is start looking for exceptions. Are there chinks in the armor here? I mean, what about an evil ruler? What about a Hitler, a Saddam Hussein, or whoever you want to list? What about them? Or what about... Uh, an elected official in our country that we don't like. We don't like the decisions he or she makes. We don't like the way that person is leading our country. We're always looking for exceptions some way that we don't have to do this. But let's think back and put this passage in perspective. When Paul wrote this, he was a Roman citizen. And Rome was the ruling authority. And Roman rule was not nice. Not nice. It was a Roman governor that, to keep the peace, crucified Jesus Christ. It was Roman authorities that mistreated the Apostle Paul at Philippi and other locations. It was the Roman authority that, at some point, would put both Peter and Paul to death. If we look back in the Scriptures we see that God put 
many people in authority that we would not classify as the kind of people we want. He put Nebuchadnezzar over Babylon for the specific purpose of Babylon carrying out judgment upon Judah for worshiping idols. He was a pagan ruler. And ultimately, the children of Israel were carried off into Babylon, Ezekiel included, and they were under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. It's the way it was. If we think even farther back, look at David. Saul was the anointed king. The anointed king. And Saul was trying to kill David. At one point, David became the anointed one. And David had opportunity to kill to kill Saul a couple of times. But David wouldn't do it. Because he said, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. And he did. Those in authority have been put there by God for a reason, <clears throat> for a reason. And the last thing we should be trying to do is look for exceptions so we don't have to do it. There is no exception that allows the Christian to be disrespectful of those in authority. They are to be respected. Now, if they command us to do something in direct violation of the Word of God, then we have the right to say no. But we don't have the right to be disrespectful. And what Paul is saying here is Christians are different we act different than the rest of the world. And therefore, we respect the governing authorities. So, it goes on. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror <clears throat> to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, <clears throat> for he does not bear the sword in vain. 
for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to God's wrath, excuse me, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. If you knowingly and willfully cheat on your taxes, you have sinned. No exceptions. Okay? No rationalizations. That's what it's saying. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. All right, so that's the broad strokes of what Paul says about authority. And this has been debated, you know, do we really have to, and, and all of this, what if they're doing something that they're not supposed to? It says it was instituted by God. God is using this some way, somehow, for his purposes. We don't always know his purposes, but we may disagree. We have the freedom to go and vote. Lots of people in this world don't. But the bottom line is we should be respectful and we should obey the law. Yes. Yeah, the question is, didn't Jesus pull a coin out of a fish's mouth to pay his taxes? He did. He did. And then he told Peter to go pay the tax for he and Peter. So Jesus obeyed the government. Even when he was asked, uh, you know, about the government He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God's the things that are God. He looked at the coin. Well, whose picture's on it? Caesar. The problem of the people that were confronting him was not that they were not rendering to Caesar. They weren't rendering to God what was God's. That was their problem. Yes. Um, The question is, are there any other examples of Jesus honoring the word respecting authority besides his trial? Well, I would point to several things. Um, The first one that comes to mind is when Mary was pregnant with Jesus, they went to register as the law required to pay their taxes. Okay. And it wasn't just to government authorities. Jesus then respected his father's word. So he was taken to the temple at 40 days, as was required by the law. 
um, he went before not only uh, Pilate, but Herod. Uh, so there are some others, and he never directs us to violate them. He never, ever, uh, he did not, he condemned Zacchaeus for taking too much and that he needed to repay them, but not for being a tax collector. Not for being a tax collector. That wasn't sinful unless you extorted money. So there are some other things out there. Now let's look at the last few verses, 8, eight to 10. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and other and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So his summary here, notice he quotes commandments from the second table of the law that deal with our relationship with others. And the summary here is, you know, ultimately is, God instituted authority, you're to love them too. There is no out. The new relationship under Christ is that the Christian loves all people. Be it the government, be it your neighbor, be it the person that is easy to love, be it the person that is hard to love. And ultimately, it all goes back to this. God loves you, and you're hard to love. You're hard to love. And still, God puts that aside and loves you. So, uh, and sends his own son for you. So this summary is pointing us again to the larger picture of love for the neighbor. All right? Let me stop there and see if there are any questions. Comments? Yes? Yeah, um, the comment was that you know, there's always a tension between us as Christians when we know that authorities are allowing, even encouraging behavior that we would consider evil. That's a tension that we have to deal with. And one of the ways to deal with it is the doctrine of two kingdoms. Now, let's talk about that a few moments. The doctrine of two kingdoms is the doctrine that the kingdom of the right hand is 
the kingdom of the gospel. The rule of the gospel is grace. This kingdom is grace. Works don't matter in this kingdom. Works don't matter. It's the grace of God that your sins are freely forgiven for Christ's sake. We live in that kingdom as believers in Jesus Christ. So do all believers. But the kingdom of the left hand is the kingdom of the law. Government. Schools. Even the business side of the church. We have a constitution and bylaws that we follow. We don't preach the constitution and bylaws, but that's how we govern the church. That's kingdom of the left hand. When men used to come to the seminary, we used to remind them in orientation that a seminary education is a law experience. You get grades, you pass or fail. Don't expect us to forgive you for an F, okay? It's a law experience. The government authorities are in the left-hand kingdom. What are we as Christians to do? We are to be witnesses of the gospel in the left-hand kingdom. We don't seek to take over the left-hand kingdom. We influence it. We witness. We are examples of keeping the laws of the land because we are Christians. Does that mean we agree with everything that goes on in the left-hand kingdom? No, we do not. So by our vote, by our words, we seek to influence the left-hand kingdom by the way we live our lives. By the way we live our lives. And so that's one way to look at this and to look at the matter of governing authorities. Dennis. The comment is, we are in a unique position in America in that we have uh, certain rights and privileges, uh, voting rights, etc., to speak out about evil that might be gone, going on and influencing it. What about people that are in countries where they don't have that right? Then you get into the whole matter is of, is the government commanding you to do something in direct violation of the law? And if of God's law, if they are, you have the right to say no, but realize you might receive punishment or persecution for that.
What other rights do you have? None. Okay? And so just like in Rome, you had to live with some of the Roman laws that were oppressive, and there really wasn't anything you could do about except pray. Yes. Well, the responsibility is Christians, but you may have the responsibility, but if they shoot you, if you exercise it, that's not doing you much good. Yeah, we don't know. It's not happening in America. But that is correct. The Boston Tea Party was against God's law. I hate to tell you that. Maybe a great moment in American history, but it was a violation of the fourth commandment. Well, yeah, but that's not a reason you do this. So uh, we as Christians seek to, to influence everything around us, the people around us, the government, the schools, etc., etc., by force? No, by love. By love. And that's what we're getting at. That's what Paul is getting at uh, in, in Romans chapter 13. All right, we're, we need to get on because the last one's 20 verses long. Uh, Matthew 18, 1 to 20. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The key to understanding this passage is understanding what it means to become like a child. What it means to become like a child. A child has no authority. A child does not rule over others. A child depends on mother and father, parents, grandparents, and others to take care of him or her. The child is a dependent upon others. Can't usurp any authority. The position of a child is one of being weak and one of being dependent. And what this passage is saying to us is, when we are weak 
and dependent totally on God, we are exactly where we're supposed to be. When we recognize we have no authority, when we recognize we can't usurp anybody's authority or exercise authority over other people, when we realize we are totally dependent upon God for our life, our health, our money, our family, for our eternal life, for all of it, then we are childlike. And the more dependent we are upon God, the more childlike we are, and the most dependent are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus has a way of reversing everything. The disciples' question was, who's the greatest? Out of all the believers in Christ, who's the greatest? What did they want him to say? You. And Jesus reverses it on them and says, the one who is totally dependent on God, weak, not trusting in himself, but is totally in the hands of God. That's the greatest one in the kingdom of heaven. That's the greatest one. So it's exactly the opposite of how the world thinks. Exactly the opposite. All right. And it is a big problem when you cause one in the kingdom to sin. Okay? One in the kingdom to sin. We'll talk about that. Well, the next verse does. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter the life, to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Don't do that. It's not to take this literally, but it is the emphasis on how serious it is. And it's trying to get our attention. Temptations are going to come to all of us. But woe to the one who is the source of the temptation. That's what's being said. Woe to the one who is the source 
of temptation. Now, Paul discusses this uh, when he discusses eating meat offered to idols in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you know there's someone around you that is, it, it bothers their conscience, then you are called upon to refrain from the action that bothers their conscience lest they fall into temptation. Lest they fall into temptation. We don't want to lead anybody astray. Now, we could certainly do that by words that we speak, but this is speaking of being a source of temptation to others, to excesses, eating, drinking, etc., gambling, to be one that promotes and encourages others to go against their conscience and even God's word. That's what we're talking about here, being the source, the cause of temptation. Temptations are going to come to you, but don't be the one that causes them to come to other people if you can help it. That's what he's saying. Because it's a serious matter and God takes it seriously. And that's why he uses all that language about cutting parts off. To show how serious this is. We are again to be the least, the most dependent, and to view our neighbor as the least and the most dependent and in love, we don't want to do anything that would hurt them. So we watch our actions and our words so that we are not the source of temptation to others. We do everything we can to refrain from that. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. We better talk about that. This passage does not teach you have a guardian angel. I hate to tell you that, it does not. What it teaches is that if you need an angel, it'll be there. They move pretty fast. So if God knows that you need an angel, but you don't have an angel assigned to you from birth to death, if you need one, if you need a thousand, they'll be there. But this does not teach guardian angels, okay? What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains? and go in search of the one that went astray. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. 
So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We're back to that concept. The least, the most dependent, the weakest are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and God doesn't want to lose one of them. So if one sheep is lost, you go after it. The elders make calls, the pastors make calls, the people of God, when they see someone missing, call them and say, we miss you. Because every single person is valuable, infinitely valuable to God. His son died for them shed his blood for them, cares and loves them. So no matter how much we don't like somebody, God loves them. And as a fellow Christian, they're still our responsibility. They're our responsibility and not just to turn a blind eye. Now we get to the end and we need to spend a few minutes on this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That verse is the tie-in with Ezekiel 33, acting as a watchman, caring about each other. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This doesn't mean go visit somebody three times and throw them out of the church. Unfortunately, there are churches that act like that. There are. That is not what Jesus is trying to say. There is no limit here of how many times you go talk to them. There's no limit of here of how much you try to love them back into the church. It's not pro forma, one, two, three, we're done. It is love and care expressed to people, and it may take years. Only at that point, where it is abundantly clear after long, long periods of trial and work with the person, would you take it to the church? But that's not what Jesus is trying to do. The purpose of this is not to throw people out of the church, it's to keep them in the church. That's the purpose. That's the direction. Back to the weakest, the least, the most dependent on God. We need to be working to see to it that that person 
is a believer in Jesus Christ and lives that way. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is back to the office of the keys, the office of the keys, um, where the church is given the authority to bind or loose sins based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that when somebody repents of their sin, we can assure them of their forgiveness. When they refuse to repent, then we can know that we need to say your sins are not forgiven. Now, know this. Always the wild card in this world is we can't see the person's heart. So the person can come and say, I repent, and we can say you are forgiven. And if they're not truly repentant, that's not our fault. We have proclaimed the forgiveness of sins and we take the person at their word. God can still retain the sin and vice versa, okay? God doesn't lose control here. He's not forced, his hand is not forced based on what we do, but we always take people at their word. When they repent of their sin, we pronounce forgiveness. We pronounce forgiveness. And even though you say in your heart, well, I don't think they're sincere, that's not for you to say. You are to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. Let me keep going here because I want to... Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is not saying that uh, what this is emphasizing is no matter how few Christians are together, God's there. That's what it's saying. It's not a minimum requirement. It's not a quorum rule. Okay? not a quorum rule. It is God saying that even two of my children, two of them, I'm going to hear and answer and they can forgive another. And I'll go even farther than that. I believe that the reason that God put this in here is for the specific reason of marriage. To remind a husband and wife that God is always in their home, always listening to them when they pray together. Sure, he listens when they're individual, but for the marriage relationship, the fact that he remembers or reminds us to TWO 
I think he's honoring his own promises concerning marriage. Concerning marriage. And, uh, and honoring that institution by mentioning two. So when two or three Christians are together, be it two or three elders or two or three people, members of the church who have gone to see someone and encourage them to come back or encourage them to give up what they're doing, God is going with you. God is hearing you. God is there for you and to strengthen you in the task that you are doing to seek that brother or sister that is greatest in the kingdom of heaven because they are weak, they are dependent upon God, even if they don't realize it. And you are God's instruments to bring the word of God to them so that they will be restored and forgiven. So there is kind of a common theme in all three lessons. The watchman doing all things in love for neighbor, and then the gospel lesson taking care of one another in Christ, okay? In Christ. All right, we've got, yes. Well, uh, those witnesses may be called to, to speak to the church that they've been there. Um, having at least two witnesses goes all the way back to the Old Testament. The witness of one wasn't enough. Had to be two. That's why, remember at Jesus' trial, they tried to find witnesses against him and no two witnesses agreed? So they couldn't proceed that way. In the church then, at least two witnesses to bear to the truth that this is what has occurred and this is what they know. And so it's on the basis of the Old Testament that it's, uh, it's witnesses against a person. But that only comes, you know, that would only come at the end, you know, when, when everything has been tried and every, every thing is exhausted, and they said, well, who went to see him? Well, maybe eight people raised their hand and testify, we, we tried. They are the witnesses. No, it's worse than that. Well, um, it depends on what they're doing. Okay? Depends on what they're doing. If it's, uh, if they simply believe certain things and, and, and they're not false doctrine, then that's not an issue. 
But if they are driving people away or teaching false doctrine, that would be an issue. And that would be for me to deal with. Okay? That would be for me to deal with. And I don't know of any of that going on at St. Paul's. I don't know of any of that going on at St. Paul's. All right. Well, I haven't decided which one I'm preaching on yet next week, but I'm only preaching in the gym, so uh, I don't know which one the other pastor's preaching on either. So you'll have to come and find out. All right, let's close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.